Hello, welcome. What a wonderful crowd. Thank you so much. It's nice to see you. My name is Liz Brailsford. I'm president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. We love being here at Dallas College. They're a big partner of ours, and we're so lucky to work with them, and uh, it's always a great time when we're here. So we're here to uh, have our Pulitzer Prize winning author and best-selling presidential historian speaker this evening, John Meacham, who will be moderated by Talmadge Boston. Uh, I'd also like to thank our sponsors this evening, Mitzi and Mike Wadsworth. Thank you very much for your sponsorship and support of this evening. And also by uh, our other supporting sponsors, Dave and Cher Jacobs. Uh, Dave is our vice chair on our board and we're so happy that he is with us in our community. Uh, I also have a couple of other things. I wanna thank our council's institutional members, a few of them, uh, NEC Corporation of America, and also Lockheed Martin. I also wanna thank American Airlines, who helps bring us our fabulous speakers, like tonight. So thank you to all of them. And then I wanna thank some board members in the audience. Dave Meyer, who's our chair, thank you so much. Uh, Steven Soper, from ExxonMobil, thank you very much. Jennifer Johnson, love having you. And then as I mentioned, uh, Dave Jacobs as well. So I want to welcome to the stage Mike Wadsworth, who I already mentioned. He's our supporter, uh, our sponsor of the program. And he is going to introduce our speakers. He's been active in Dallas commercial real estate for over 35 years. He was also on our board of directors and we were lucky to have him as well. So Mike, I welcome you to the stage. Please join me in welcoming him. Good evening. What a great looking crowd. I'm immediately going to go off speech. If you haven't seen the Dallas 500 list of top CEOs in Dallas, one of them is my friend Liz Brailsford, and she won't tell you that, but I will. She's doing a great job. So look. On behalf of the World Affairs Council, my wife Mitzi and I want to thank you for joining us for what ought to be a great evening. Uh, here's a quick pop quiz for you. I'm going to read you a list of books that have two things in common. Franklin and Winston, Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power, American Lion, The Soul of America, Destiny and Power, Songs of America, and The Hope of Glory. One of those two things they have in common is they are all on my bookshelf at home. And the other that they have in common is they were written by our guest tonight, John Meacham. John is a renowned presidential historian and a best-selling Pulitzer Prize winning author. He holds the Carolyn T and Robert M. Rogers Chair in the American Presidency at Vanderbilt University. He's a contributing editor at Time Magazine and has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Vanity Fair, among others. He's a frequent guest on television broadcast. If you get up at 5.30 in the morning to watch uh, Morning Joe, he's gonna be on there tomorrow morning. Um, he's here, he began his career at the hometown Chattanooga Times and he's here tonight to discuss his latest book, And There Was Light, American Lincoln and the Amer uh, Abraham Lincoln, excuse me, and the American Struggle, which tells the story of a presidency who governed a divided country. And it's got a lot to teach us today. Our discussion tonight with John will be led by a great friend of the council, Talmadge Boston. Talmadge is a Dallas-based litigation partner in the law firm of Shackleford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. He's the author of four history books of his own on baseball, legal, and presidential history. And if I could throw in a plug, his podcast, Cross-Examining History, 
is one of my go-to listens. I'd strongly recommend it to you. During the pandemic, we had a virtual session with Jean Becker, who had written a book entitled The Man I Knew about her time as George Herbert Walker Bush's chief of staff in his post-presidency years. In the book, Jean talks about 41's last days in Houston and his struggles to speak while battling Parkinson's. Barbara Bush had just passed, and John had been one of the speakers at her funeral. And both John and Jean were present in Houston as a stream of visitors came to see the president in his final days. Jean wrote, I would cringe when I saw people just talk and talk and talk. They weren't comfortable with the silence that would come between what they said and what President Bush eventually would say. And no one had mastered the art form of listening more than John Meacham, who knew how to wait and was always rewarded. What a beautiful and a remarkable observation. Please join me in welcoming two great lovers of American history to the stage, John Meacham and my friend Talmadge Boston. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> that was great. John, we always are curious when somebody decides to seize on a subject like Abraham Lincoln that's been covered many times before. Yeah, I was misinformed. I didn't know if anybody had written about him. <laughs> we talked earlier that one of the driving forces was because until now nobody's really nailed down the impact of Lincoln's religious faith on his presidency. And you say in the book that during his presidency he forged a faith of his own, which involved an immersion in a Presbyterian theology in which God was an active participant in the affairs of the world. So describe Lincoln's faith perspective as president in that context. Sure, he was uh, an unconventional Christian, to say the least. Uh, never joined a church, which was highly unusual. Uh, it might be a good step to being a Christian, is not joining a church, but that's I say that as an Episcopalian, so. Um, I realize we're in a room with a balcony, so anybody up there should watch out since we're talking about Lincoln. But um, the, uh, the notion for him was that there was an unseen order, that there was a creator, that God was involved in history in a remarkable way. It was very much a uh, Hebrew Bible sense of history. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end. We were in the middle. And what we did in the middle would determine how we were treated at the end and afterward. And that's a hugely important point. Someone that was very important to him was a very obscure book at this point, uh, an Anglican bishop, Bishop of Durham, named uh, Joseph Butler, who wrote a book almost impenetrable book called uh, The Analogy of Religion. And in it, Butler talked about conscience as being essential, not simply to do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing, but doing the right thing so that you would not be punished after death, but would be rewarded. And so not only was there a moral obligation because it was right, but it was in your self-interest. And that was a theme in Lincoln's uh, religious and theological uh, thought. 
he believed that no one acted on anything other than incentive when he was urged to uh, take emancipation off the table uh, in peace talks with the Confederacy in 1864 and early 65. He said, no man acts but on incentive. And I can't ask black men to take up arms to defend the Union and then say they might not be free at the end of the war. So if you take away that incentive, we, we hurt the war effort. So it was, was two-pronged, right? It was the right thing to do, but it was also a practical thing to do. Uh, his, I believe that his understanding, his engagement with the invisible order grew during the presidency uh, because of the ubiquity of death. 750,000 people died in a country of 30 million people. Uh, during the Civil War. We used to think it was 600,000. We now think it was closer to three-quarters of a million. Uh, his son died. They lost two children, uh, but Willie died in, in early 62. And there's an uptick in the references to God and providence after Willie's death. Now, that's, is that causative or correlated? It, it's hard to say, but it happened. And there was a minister who was very important to him named Phineas Gurley. Isn't that a great name? Um, I'd listen to a sermon from someone called Phineas Gurley. Uh, and he was the uh, pastor of the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church. Very Presbyterian. Are there Presbyterians here? Problem with Presbyterians is y'all are like Quakers who sing because if it's all preordained, what's the point, right? We, at least we have fun uh, while, we, while we make our choices. Um, but he's offered the notion that there was a providential order and that even the worst things had some role in an overarching plan. And I think in the immensity of the war, in the cataclysm of the war, that may have been cold comfort, but it was comfort. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that keeps Lincoln so popular through the decades and centuries is everything seems so timeless. And in your yeah. preface, you say Lincoln has much to teach us in this 21st century moment of polarization, passionate disagreement, and differing understandings of reality. So in referencing your book's title, And There Was Light, what are the key elements of the light that Lincoln can shine on us in 2022? I believe fundamentally it was a conviction that American democracy was worth the struggle that if we see each other not as reflexive adversaries, but as neighbors, if we see each other as people who have equal standing before the law, before custom, then to connect these two points, we are more likely to be respected ourselves. If you extend a hand, you're more likely to get one back. And the durability, the viability, and the difficulty of democracy is, I, th I think, was fundamental to him. He saw anti-slavery and the future of democracy as entwined causes, that a country that enslaved on the basis of race was a country that was not living up to its own principles. And look, I'm a boringly heterosexual white male Southern Episcopalian. Things work out for me in this country, right? <laughs> um, the point of the country, and someone like me, Thomas Jefferson, uh, ethnically, created this, right? 
we weren't forced to say we were founded on an idea. We chose to do that. We chose to begin the national experiment in constitutional democracy with a statement of equality. And having chosen that, we imposed on ourselves obligations to live up to it. We haven't done it fully, but we're doing it better today than we did yesterday, and God willing, we'll, we'll continue to do that. What Lincoln insisted on was that there were facts, that facts had to be respected, that votes had to be counted, that the Constitution had to be obeyed, or if not obeyed, then amended. And without that ethos of liberty under law, we would descend into the law of the jungle, this Hobbesian idea that we were all in a state of nature, that it was a war of all against all. And I fundamentally believe that Lincoln was the best friend Thomas Jefferson ever had, because he elevated Jefferson. Uh, elevated the Declaration to this central place in the national narrative. Four score and seven years ago was not 1787, it was 1776. Mm -hmm. And not everybody did that then. Uh, so Lincoln's insight there was that the mission statement of the country deserved primacy of place, as opposed to the user's guide, which was amendable. And that the Declaration was not in fact amendable that that was the clarity, that we grounded that brilliantly in the laws of nature and of nature's God, right? That was the phrase. It's one of the great edits in American history. Uh, when Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration grounded it uh, solely in, he said, he called it in these sacred truths, and Franklin added sacred and self-evident to bring in the Enlightenment crowd so that you got both the religious and the unreligious to accept the same view. Now, most people regard Lincoln as our greatest American hero, but even our greatest American hero has been on the receiving end of some criticism through the years. One of the main ones was, why did he take so long to become such a strong advocate for abolitionism? And my question is, if he had been stronger sooner on abolition, on being an abolitionist and wanting to bring a total end to slavery, could he ever have been elected president in 1860? No, and he barely was then, right? I mean, it was 39%. He only got a few more votes than I got that year. <laughs> uh, you know, so 39.6% uh, is what he got. And, and no votes, obviously, in, in, in the South. Um, so I want to be very careful here. What I'm about to say is not to say, aren't we in America great? Uh, I think we're a great country, but in this particular point, I'm just offering historical context to the struggles Lincoln faced. So the only equivalent experience of emancipation to what America was facing in the middle of the 19th century was Great Britain's experience in the 1830s. And as you, if you have English friends, they're always quick to point out, aren't they, that they abolished slavery first. Okay, 1833 they did. But there are a couple of details that are important. There were 800,000 enslaved people in the British Empire in 1833. There were four million in the United States in the time, the time of the Civil War. 
the 800,000 enslaved people were almost all offshore. They weren't in England or Scotland. The great abolition bill of 1833 exempted India, kind of a big to be sure, right? Besides that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Um, it was over a 10-year period, and it provided compensation not for the enslaved, but for slave owners. To this sum, it was 40% of Great Britain's annual expenditures in 1833 went to the slave owners. The financial instruments used to fund that were not paid off until 2015, right? So again, I'm not saying, wow, look at us, aren't we great? But I am saying that if you're Abraham Lincoln and you're dealing with a genuine political, economic, cultural, moral crisis, which is what human enslavement, the future of democracy, durability of the union was, as opposed to telling a kind of historical fairy tale, then you have to judge reality for what it is. Lincoln was actually, there's a trope, and, and, and Talmadge knows this as well or better than I do. There's a, there's a theme in Lincoln's scholarship that Lincoln grew in office. Now when you say someone grew in office, what that's code for is they came to agree with me, right? That's when people say that. Oh, he's matured. Um, Actually, Lincoln's anti-slavery convictions were remarkably consistent. That's because the South thought he meant what he said, which is that slavery was wrong and should not be extended, was why they seceded. South Carolina voted on December 20th, 1860 to leave, seven weeks after the presidential election, because they thought Lincoln was an enemy of slavery. So you always have to judge people by their foes as well as by their, by their friends. I don't think he grew. What I think he did is he rose to the occasion. And secession, the exigencies and contingencies of war created occasions for him to pursue a more aggressive anti-slavery agenda. Now, for what it's worth, every person who was an abolitionist in the United States in 1860 was anti-slavery but not every person who was anti-slavery was an abolitionist. Abolitionists were the, to use our vernacular, they were the far left. The secessionists were the far right. Lincoln was here, but he was here, not here. And so, again, I'm not trying to canonize him. He wasn't Martin Luther King in a stovepipe hat. He was a flawed, fallen, frail, infallible man. But from his very beginning, I think in part because he grew up in a Kentucky anti-slavery Baptist ethos, and if you don't believe in the providence of, of some good force, how many white Kentucky anti-slavery Baptists do you think there were in 1809? 500? There weren't 1,000, but two of them were Abraham Lincoln's parents. And so his first encounter with arguments about slavery was an anti-slavery. Now, it wasn't just because, I'm not trying to turn the Lincoln family into Wilberforce. They were struggling white farmers. Struggling white farmers did not like slavery because it created an aristocracy that made them, put them at a competitive disadvantage. 
They replaced, uh, and to be anti-slavery was not to be pro-black or egalitarian by any means. That said, he was anti-slavery and was willing when other people were not, other people in power, and again, you always have to ask, what was the plausible path here or there? He was willing to make that stand in the winter of 6061. And we would be living in a very different country if we were living in the same country, if he had made a different decision. Well, let's talk about the Emancipation Proclamation. And as you know, the language of it was, I'm doing this as a matter of military necessity. Yep. And that military necessity, he freed the runaway slaves from the South. He did not free the slaves in the border states because he needed to keep the border states to win the war. In fact, 200,000 uh, runaway slaves joined the Union Army, an incredibly important infusion of military strength at a time when they needed it. What was the impact of the Emancipation Proclamation on the war from a military standpoint as well as giving the North something to fight for? Well, you're exactly right. So Frederick Douglass and others had argued from the very beginning that if you armed black Americans, it would increase white respect for them, it would increase uh, sentiment for emancipation, and it would help the war effort. And one of the reasons Lincoln did it is without emancipation, you were leaving a massive, to use a cold and clinical term, a massive asset in the hands of the enemy. If you weren't promising the enslaved who were working for Southern planters, freedom, you were basically leaving their infrastructure intact. So as a war measure, it made sense. My argument is that he did it, yes, it was a war measure, but he began that journey because he thought it was wrong. And he said that again and again. Cooper Union and elsewhere. We believe that slavery is wrong and should be contained. They believe slavery is right and should be extended. On that issue hangs the entire question. Incredibly clear, that was the speech that launched his national campaign. We believe the Declaration of Independence applies to all human beings. That didn't necessarily mean that citizenship and the franchise would go along with it. He, it took him a long time to get there. And in fact, it was a speech on April 11th, three days before he died, where he proposes giving the vote to freed blacks in Louisiana that led John Wilkes Booth, who heard the speech, to say, I'm gonna kill him. And 72 hours later, Lincoln was dead. That's late, though. That's 1865. That's the spring of 65. So, again, Lincoln was not an egalitarian until the very end. I wish he were. This would be a lot easier. It'd be a lot easier to talk about. I wish the world were a lot more just. Well, it'd be a lot easier to talk about in 2022, but you've got to talk, talk about his words in the context of his time. But, but, we, but to be absolutely fair, Frederick Douglass was right. Charles Sumner was right. Wendell Phillips was right. Garrison's a complicated figure. But there were voices arguing for egalitarianism in the 19th century. And if you are, play, if you are engaged in a conversation with the Declaration of Independence, it is very hard to argue that on the basis of race, you, must be, you should therefore be excluded from citizenship 
if you are a man, and what was the abolitionist motto, am I not a man and a brother? If you believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, this is not a complicated question. Shouldn't be a complicated question. It became one, and we have to confront that all the time, but that's not to be self-righteous about the past, but it's, it's not true. If, if I, I, look, I, I only write about problematic white people, right? <laughs> so I, I write about what I know. Um, so I've written about Andrew Jackson, Thomas Jefferson, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, Abraham Lincoln. These are, these are marvelous people, but they are sinful people. The remarkable thing about American history is that we have sinful people who managed to do one or two saintly things. I still haven't done that yet. I'm working on it. We live in hope. Um, let me tell you this totally irrelevant story, but it's the only thing you'll remember. Um, <laughs> so let me tell you a story about three of my favorite topics, because um, I was thinking about Jackson. Andrew Jackson, Donald Trump, and George Herbert Walker Bush. I know it sounds like a joke, and there's, one, and there's a rabbi and a parachute, but no. <laughs> this is a true story. So in March of 2017, President Trump announces that he's coming down to Nashville, where I live, to embrace Andrew Jackson, go to the Hermitage where Jackson lived, and uh, become a, uh, a Jacksonian. And so I'm sitting at home, and I think, well, I should do something. So I decide to write an open letter to the president, saying, dear Mr. President, welcome. If you're going to embrace Andrew Jackson, though, don't just embrace the crazy parts. And there are plenty of crazy parts of Andrew Jackson to embrace, right? Jackson once said that his only two regrets in public life were that he had not shot Henry Clay, the Speaker of the House, and hung John C. Calhoun, his own vice president. <laughs> anyway, um, I didn't say anything. Uh, Y'all just laughed. Um, and I sent it to the local newspaper. And the day the president arrives, it's the entire front page of the paper. The only thing on the front page of the Nashville paper was my letter to the president. Kind of a bold editorial call on their part. Had no effect whatever on the president. Uh, Next day, I'm walking into lunch, this is a true story, and my phone rings, and it's President Bush. And I enter, he says, how you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm fine, Mr. President, how are you doing? I'm fine. He said, I read your letter to Jackson, and I thought, oh shit, the old boy's losing it, right? He thinks I'm writing letters to dead people. And so I said, thank you, sir. Um, you know, actually, that was a letter to Trump about Jackson. And without missing a beat, the old man said, yeah, but Jackson will pay more attention. <laughs> And then he hung up. He had thought of the joke. He wanted to deliver it, and then he hung up. Uh, again, no relevance, but, but to me, the moral utility of history is not to condemn the past in order to make ourselves feel better. It is to look back and say, if even the best people of a given era could be so wrong, what are we getting wrong that if we make it, people will look back and hold us to account for, and therefore, what can we do to redeem it in real time? Now, on the subject of problematic people, let's talk about... You don't need to gesture at me when you say that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is a cradle-to-grave biography, and so let's talk about Mary Lincoln. Uh, during the war, uh, Lincoln said to a friend he was, quote, constantly under great apprehension lest his wife do something which would bring him into disgrace. 
So with all this in mind, during his presidency, was Mary Todd, did she do him more harm than good, or vice versa? You know, I'll quote your, your neighbor here, um, who I hope has said this publicly, or though I'm outing it. Um, George W. Bush has said, having read a ton of Lincoln books, that he can't imagine being a war president and going home to a wife who wasn't just reassuring and wonderful. And Lincoln went home to a wife who was not entirely reassuring and wonderful. Um, I think she suffered from mental illness. Uh, and again, I'm a Tennessean, so that's all I do. Uh, and everyone I know. Um, so I, I, I'm sympath genuinely sympathetic to that. Um, you know, after Lincoln's death, Robert Todd Lincoln actually had her committed for a time to an asylum in Illinois. Um, how'd you like to be at Christmas that year uh, at the Lincoln household? Um, I think that she was a, she brought more chaos than order. And his, it was more of a trial than a source of reassurance. I'm not as negative about some people. Some people really don't like her. Uh, there are some historians who have just write whole books about this. Um, I, I believe that someone who lost two children, who had lost her mother at a very early age, had a stepmother she didn't like, uh, who didn't like her, I have a great deal of empathy for Mrs. Lincoln. But I think to answer your question quite directly, I do not think when President Lincoln left his office, which is now the Lincoln bedroom, and went back to the suite, he was heading into a, a marital Valhalla. Mm -hmm. Now, another frequent criticism that arises of Lincoln is he could have shortened the Civil War if he had been willing to compromise on uh, allowing states to secede or if he had compromised on slavery. So when you hear those types of criticism and all the lives that were lost because of his refusal to compromise, what's your response? I just don't, I don't, I don't understand that. I mean, I know there's a, there's kind of a neo, I don't know what you'd call it, neo anti-Lincolnism or something. Uh, he believed that a country that recognized the means to violently break itself apart could not therefore be a country. Said that in the first inaugural, an inaugural in which he drew on Henry Clay, Andrew Jackson, uh, the Declaration, Daniel Webster. The right of forcible secession, he, believed, he did not recognize. And the notion that you could secede violently to him was anathema. Was, could the war have been shorter? Sure. If you'd let the South go, what would have happened? Well, I mean, certainly your state may be mine in Tennessee, but certainly Texas would have been part of either a Confederate States of America or knowing you all, you would have created yet another one. Um, you probably are thinking about it now. Uh, there are some. You might have a quorum here. Um, and what would have happened to the enslaved people then? Right? 
you create a slave-based system beyond the reach of the Constitution. There's a, an and, remember, our forebears in Texas and in Tennessee were not simply thinking about having the SEC as a country, right? They wanted to go south. They wanted to add Cuba. Four presidential administrations had tried to bring Cuba into the Union. It was called the Golden Circle, and the center of the circle was Havana. It was going to be an economic and cultural center. They were going to take parts of Mexico. Remember, Nicaragua had been the object of a filibuster. Slavery had been reinstituted in Nicaragua. We know where the border is, but they didn't know where it was going to be. And so you're talking about an entirely different Western Hemisphere that, if you want to play this out, if you had had, heading into the 20th century, an American nation as we know it, more like Central or South America, would we have had the capacity to project the power we did back across, this is the World Affairs Council, to project the power back across the Atlantic to fight autocracy in Europe in either 1917 or 1939, 40, 41? Would we have had the will and the capacity to stand against communism in a nuclear age? Could we have, I mean, it, it, it undoes the story of modernity to think about a dismembered American Union. And that's the global context, right? Think about the human cost. Those four million enslaved people we were talking about were in these states. So when would emancipation have come? It would have been the 20th century, I promise you that. It wasn't gonna be 1867. So, it's, it's a cataclysmic question. And to criticize Lincoln, as, some, as people do, oh, you know, he suspended habeas corpus and you know, cracked down on free speech. Yeah, he sure did. Because, as he put it, I don't know how to make omelets without breaking some eggs. Well, let's talk about the speeches that live forever. They're the ones whose words are etched in the walls of the Lincoln Memorial. The first. The Gettysburg Address, 272 words, took less than three minutes to deliver. And you say it, quote, distilled decades of Lincoln's thinking into 272 words and was an eloquent attempt to frame American politics as a moral understanding. So talk about Lincoln's process of being able to synthesize all that information, all of those thoughts, into just a little more than a handful of words. Yeah, it really pisses me off, because I can't do it. <laughs> uh, really annoying that he could do it. Um, but I'm, I'm overcoming that. I'm working on that. It's an issue I have. Um, so I was, uh, Talmadge knows this, I was honored. I was invited to read the Gettysburg Address at Gettysburg a couple of weeks ago. It was as cold as you've ever been. Um, and it's, a, it's at the cemetery, of course, and it's at, um, they have a citizenship, you know, where they take the oath. It's a very moving thing. If you haven't been to one of those, it's, it's worth going to. And there were a lot of speakers. And again, I was just reading, 
what the other guy said. Uh, so I was sort of the last thing. And I was watching these poor incoming citizens freezing here. I mean, they were your tired and your huddled mass, but only because there were all these speakers. Uh, so the first thing I said when I got up, already going over the word limit of Lincoln, was stick with this. I know you're rethinking this and thinking about going home, but you know we'll be OK. Um, so the Gettysburg Address, fundamentally, is an articulation of the morality of democracy. It grounds the American experience in the Declaration, not the Constitution, as we just discussed. It argues that the recognition that a, a nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal is vital and difficult to defend. He raises the question, will this long endure? Why? Why is that a question? It's a question because it's about all of us. It's about the management, the, our capacity to manage our appetites and our ambition to recognize the equality and sanctity of other people. Now, you all are better people than I am. That's not hard, by the way. But it is really, really hard, isn't it, to do the right thing. I would people would rather, this is from the first chapter of Genesis forward, would rather take than give. And in fact, when you're ready to give, it's usually after you've taken a good bit. That's the nature of history. It's been going on since the garden. What Lincoln was arguing there was that liberty under law could endure if, in fact, we saw that we are created equal. And it's a moral question. And I don't, moral in the sense of, that sounds Sunday schoolish, I don't mean that. Moral in its ur sense means how we are with each other. Mores is the, the, the ancient root of the word. So are we able to treat our neighbors as our neighbors, or do we treat them as enemies? It's a live question in the 21st century. It's a perennial question, but it feels particularly vivid right now. Because the folks who stormed the Capitol on January 6th, they were trying to take. They were trying to take something. And those forces seem to be in abeyance at the moment, but that's a battle and not the war. And that's what Lincoln was saying. We are met on a battlefield of a war that is being fought to see whether a nation dedicated to this proposition can long endure. History's never over. There was never a once upon a time in America, and there's never going to be a happily ever after. I wish there were. And I know, you know, I said love your neighbor. And remember, if we all loved our neighbor as ourselves, Jesus wouldn't have had to bother to command it. Right? You don't put up speed limit signs if everybody's driving safely. And I... Parenthetically, whenever I say neighbor, I think about Mr. Rogers, of course. And um, so there was a quick story about a very small category called Great Tweets. It's like French military victories in the 20th century. Very um, and about six months ago, somebody tweeted out that if Doris Kearns Goodwin and Mr. Rogers 
had had a one-night stand, I would have resulted. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Yeah, thank you. Doris was kind of annoyed. Um, so my phone rang, and she said, did you see this? I said, yeah, Ma, what's wrong? <laughs> she said, well, I don't think we could have had a one-night stand. What if Mr. Rogers and I had fallen in love and you were the fruit of our long union? I said, no, 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 sweetheart. He picked you up in the C-SPAN bar. <laughs> We've come to the part of the program where we have some questions from the audience. Uh, the first one that pops up uh, is tied to what you and I talked about earlier, and that is over 16,000 books on Lincoln. What inspired you to think you had something new and different to say, and I'm going to tie that to a question I asked you earlier this morning because I loved your answer, and that is, when you do what John does and you write these massive, wonderfully researched presidential biographies, you're living with your subject. And so in that experience of living with Lincoln these many years that led to the creation of this, what was the best thing about that, and, and, and what, did that inspire you to, to see a new insight, we talked about the faith, but, but just this yeah. process of distinguishing this book and your experience with this book compared to the many Lincoln books you've read before. Yeah, I wanted, David McCullough used to say that if you couldn't find exactly the book you wanted to read, you should write it, which is kind of a high bar actually. Um, I wanted to know why Lincoln defended democracy in its hour of maximum danger. And there's no question that this book comes out of our own crisis in democracy, our own self-evident depleted trust in the capacity of the country to manage its problems and to see, the, to see politics not as an occasion for total war, but as a mediation of differences. And so I, I thought for a long time and I've talked to you all about this book before too. Uh, four years ago, five years ago now, I wrote a book called The Soul of America in which I largely argued that this was like our own time, was more like 1932, 33, or 1950-52 uh, with McCarthy, or 68, a terrible year with Tet and the assassinations and the riots. And I'm... Can, I'm more worried that it's more like the 1850s. That we just, that there is a dedicated faction in the country that chooses its own reality and that uses the language of faith, the language of the civic religion as we think of it, the civic culture of the country to defend a fundamental selfishness that is not about recognizing the Declaration, but is about advancing their own power. That worries me all the time. I'm a lot of fun to hang out with, as you can. Um, and so I wanted to know not just how Lincoln did it, but why. And I believe that the lesson of Abraham Lincoln is that if you send someone to the pinnacle of power, who is only interested in their own perpetuation of power, then God help us. So that's one. Uh, in living with Lincoln, uh, I was excited to see that a 
imperfect, broken man could do great things. And I was sad to realize that as an imperfect, broken man, I don't feel I'm up to the level of what he did. And in a democracy, the thrilling and terrifying thing is that it's up to us. That's thrilling. And it's also pretty terrifying. It's like, oh, Jesus, it's up to us. Another question asked about, we, we talked about the, the political scene at the time, but not much is talked about what was it in the eyes of black Americans at the time? And obviously the leading black American figure was Frederick Douglass. So talk about their perspective as to what's going on with this civil war, with yeah. emancipation, with Lincoln as the leader. Yeah. And there was not, as there is not now, a black perspective uh, any more than there's a white perspective. Uh, Douglas represented one element. Uh, Douglas was a constitutionalist. Uh, when William Lloyd Garrison and others burned the Constitution showily to say it was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell, and that the Constitution was fundamentally a racist document that was not commensurate with the challenges of a free society, Douglas was the one who said no. The title of this book, it comes from Genesis, but it really comes from Frederick Douglass, who actually wrote as well, if not better, <laughs> than, than God. Um, which is also annoying. Uh, Douglas could not write a bad sentence. Um, he said in his great uh, 1852 oration, black Americans used to be invited to speak at Fourth of July celebrations, but on the fifth, uh, he said, I do not despair of this country. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. So don't listen to me, listen to Frederick Douglass. Um, so that's one. There were other perspectives. There were black Americans who favored colonization, uh, who for reasons of black nationalism, for all sorts of different reasons, uh, had a view that in fact, this country was so implacably racist that they were never going to find an egalitarian home. And so there were people who argued for that. Uh, there's a wonderful man whom I hadn't known much about named Henry Highland Garnett, who was the pastor of a uh, African-American church in Washington. One of the elders of his church was William Slade, who was Lincoln's steward in the White House. And in fact, after the assassination, Mrs. Lincoln gave Slade one of Lincoln's walking sticks. They were that close. And Garnett preached a sermon uh, on the Sunday after, no, no, the Sunday after is Lincoln's birthday. On February 12th, 1865, the Sunday after the passage of the 13th Amendment, the Abolition Amendment. Uh, in, he was the first black man to speak in the House of Representatives. They used to have church services there. Uh, on Sundays, and Garnett preached an amazing sermon uh, about the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man. And just parenthetically, you know, we have a big debate in this country about were we founded in 1619 or 1776 or 1865? I'd submit for you to upset people at Christmas, um, which is kind of my job to offer you. Uh, <laughs> I think we were founded, as we understand the country, 
1965. The first integrated electorate in American history was in 1968. We're five minutes old. And so these, these forces that Lincoln was dealing with, and the forces for which he's criticized, right, not moving fast enough. But you're, you're, you're talking about months for Lincoln, in Lincoln's case. Centuries in the case of the nation. But it's why I'm, I, I'm skeptical about blaming any, blaming, taking shots at individuals like Lincoln or like Andrew Jackson in, this, in some of these issues because as if if you remove them, somehow or another we've expiated the sin when in fact they embody what we're all complicit in. To remove someone, to tear them down, is it's a kind of cultural Xanax, right? Maybe it makes you feel better for a little while, but there are underlying issues that matter. My, fi my final thought on that is when you talk about statues, and I suspect many of you all are part of those conversations, I have a test to suggest. Um, were you devoted to the journey toward a more perfect union? If the answer is yes, then we'll start talking about whether you should be, uh, be memorialized on public space. If you were about ending the constitutional experiment, then no. And that takes Confederates off public land. And I grew up on Missionary Ridge, which is where Arthur MacArthur won his was Medal of Honor. I grew up a thousand yards from Braxton Bragg's headquarters. So I, I grew up with cannons in the yard. I could find Manet balls into the 1970s. So I'm not, I don't, anybody wants to play that game with me, I'm ready. <laughs> but if you were about ending the United States of America, it's very hard to imagine why we should commemorate that in a public place. If you want to do it at home, if you want to do it at a school or a church, that's your argument. But in public places, I, I think that should be the test. For our final question, which I think is tied into living with Lincoln, he was a sinful man, et cetera, et cetera. But he was a whole lot less sinful than just about all of our other heroes. He never owned slaves. He didn't father children with slaves. He didn't run around on his wife. So the question is, what was wrong with him? Are there any examples of where he was short-sighted or naive or something where you say, yeah, he's, there were issues there? Because they weren't big issues compared to our other heroes, it seems to me. Oh, I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, sure. I mean, I think the, the big question is a cultural one. It's, it's, it's one writ large. Imagine what, let me put it this way. If Abraham Lincoln had had a cold on April 11th, 1865, and had decided not to give that speech I mentioned, where he proposes citizenship and the franchise for black Americans in Louisiana, which people like me grab onto to say he was getting there. If he hadn't given that speech, this would be a different conversation. Because it would mean that he was 
still in his context of anti-slavery, you know, pre-Civil War, what Abraham Lincoln wanted to do was keep slavery where it was in the hopes that it would ultimately extinguish itself. It was a theory called the scorpion sting, that you would build a cordon of fire around it and that, like a scorpion, it would end up killing itself. That's pretty easy for white people to want to have happen if you weren't enslaved. It's a very unsatisfactory intellectual argument. I'm not condemning him, and it's better than most people, but it's not, you're not gonna build a monument for that. Here's where he steps out of that and steps ahead of that and into our lives and our memories. He refused, like Churchill in 1940, to appease any longer than he had to. And the moment he becomes president-elect and a compromise is put on the table to extend slavery to Arizona and New Mexico and avoid the Civil War, he says no at a time when almost everybody else was saying yes. William Seward, in this case, is Lord Halifax. Uh, the Wall Street was for it. Charles Francis Adams of Massachusetts was for it. They were like, let's avoid war, let slavery go into the desert and not worry about it. And if that had happened, slavery would have lasted in the United States of America, I believe, into the 20th century. It's hard to see how else it would have happened. Lincoln himself wrote in his message, in an annual message in 1862, he had a gradual plan of emancipation with compensation for the slave owners, with voluntary colonization that would have gone in fully into effect in 1900. It's the only time, I think, that he ever discussed the 20th century was in the context of slavery lasting until then, right? So this is, we're not firing, shooting off fireworks. To Talmadge's point, he was more advanced than almost anybody, and certainly more advanced than anybody who plausibly could have been president of the United States. And I'm a writer of history, not a wizard. And so in that context, Lincoln did great things. But it's a reminder again that even our greatest heroes were wrong about fundamental issues of human rights. And I think that, I don't think we do ourselves any favors by playing trumpets all the time about them. But also you don't tear them down either, right? You just look them in the eye. My view of this is we don't serve ourselves by looking up at the past adoringly or down on it condescendingly. Look it in the eye. And then maybe when we look in the mirror, we can see ourselves more clearly. Let's say thanks to John Meacham for coming to Dallas. Thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am such a fan. I was telling John before the show started tonight, I'm just a, a total fangirl. You're, you're smart, you're engaging, you're funny, you're eloquent. You're all the things. <laughs> I'll take that all night. That's great. Thank you very much. And I'll also say that he's been on a seven-week tour 
uh, of doing this night after night. And for you to be as good as you were tonight after seven weeks, we so appreciate you being here. Thank you, Talmadge. As always, you do such a fantastic job moderating. Thank you very much. I have a small token of our appreciation, and then we're gonna take a photo. And to all of you, join us as a member. Come again. Thank you for coming. Have a good night. <laughs>